How much has offshore wind grown? And how's the UK doing at decarbonizing? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and US-based climate news. I'm Becky Hoke, a science writer. Today is Thursday, June 30th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Overall, heat records kept getting outdone in Europe this week. Just on Monday, a city in Finland hit a record 88.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 31.4 degrees Celsius. A city in Norway hit a record 88.9 degrees Fahrenheit or 31.6 degrees Celsius. And a city in Tunisia hit a record 118 degrees Fahrenheit or 47.8 degrees Celsius. Surface temperature in the Mediterranean is about 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels right now. Globally, we are at 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Temperatures surpassed 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius across Italy this week, and Rome hit a record 105 degrees Fahrenheit on Tuesday. Time for some climate studies. There's a new study out that looks at the risks avoided if the world keeps warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. They looked at things like water scarcity, heat stress, vector-borne disease, flooding, and projected impacts of agriculture and the economy. The study found that the effects of these factors I mentioned are reduced by 10 to 44% if warming is kept to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to 2. Risk avoidance was highest in river flooding, heat stress, and drought, with the absolute largest being drought aka drought besides coral reefs dying, is probably our biggest motivator to keep warming low. The regions that will be the most impacted by droughts seem to be Western Africa, India, and North America. Meanwhile, a study published in the Geophysical Research Letters determined that places in drought are more likely to experience heat waves. The study explains, quote, As drought alters the surface energy budget in ways that affect lower atmosphere temperatures and circulation, it is possible that the combined drought-heat event was a cascading climate hazard, in which pre-existing drought exacerbated the heat wave. They determined this relationship is modest, but definitely present. And this is exemplified by the U.S. southwestern mega drought last summer, where unusually dry conditions boosted their temperatures by 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Another study, this one published in the journal Nature Communications, looked at how flood and poverty interact in 188 countries. It determines that almost a quarter of the world's population is directly exposed to one in a hundred year flood, and 89% of these people are low or middle income. The largest amount of people impacted by floods are located in South and East Asia, where China and India account for a third of the global risk. Sub-Saharan Africa is the next location at risk, and many people at risk in that region also experience extreme poverty. Okay, let's look at some climate victories. Offshore wind insulations surged threefold between 2020 and 2021, according to a new report by the Global Wind Energy Council. This brings the offshore wind capacity to 56 gigawatts, which, to be fair, is extremely small, but it's growing. China alone installed 17 gigawatts last year, kicking the UK out of first place for the first time by a lot. While the US is still way far behind at less than a gigawatt, projects started in 11 East Coast states will get us to 35 gigawatts. New York is in the lead. Many will likely become operational around 2023 or 2024. 
In other news, the National Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, announced it plans to drop emissions for civilian and military operations by 45% by 2030 to be carbon neutral by 2050. This refers to their assets like AWACS surveillance planes, its drones based in Italy, and its headquarters in Brussels, as well as military operations in Belgium, Italy, and the Netherlands. It also includes their national military's carbon footprint. This should be interesting, as many countries have exempted their military's emissions from their country's overall numbers. And over in the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, just asked if they could help guide a $500 million program to put clean energy on current or former mine lands. The program, called the Repowering America's Land Initiative, is run by the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, funded by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. They're starting small with just two to five projects. The U.S. has about 17,750 mine sites, totaling 1.5 million acres, which could produce about 89 gigawatts of electricity from solar, microgrids, wind, biomass, geothermal, and advanced nuclear plants. Biomass might be a red flag, depending on what type they mean. The EPA is also considering placing direct air capture facilities on these lands. This next news story is a gray space for me. Canada announced it would delay the start date of regulations to reduce the carbon intensity of gas and diesel by seven months for early clean fuel standards, or CFS, credit creation that will help companies lower their initial compliance costs. However, it also said it would increase the standards to require gas and diesel to reduce the amount of carbon per unit of energy by 15% compared to the 2016 levels by 2030 instead of the original 13%. So basically, they're delaying the start of the regulations, but they're also upping the requirement of the regulations. Exported fossil fuels with attached carbon capture and storage technology will now not qualify for CFS credits, where before both imported and exported fossil fuel operations with carbon capture qualified. Canada is the fourth largest exporter of crude oil, and it plans to be net zero by 2050. Now we move on to the climate fails. Queensland, Australia announced that it will approve a controversial expansion of the New Hope Group's New Iceland coal mine and extend its life for another 12 years. It will increase the mine's output from 4.8 million tons a year to 7.8 million tons a year, but the company still has yet to receive the necessary mine tender and water license approvals, so maybe there's a chance to still stop the project. Environmentalists and farmers have worked for a decade to stop this expansion project from getting the go-ahead. The mine exhausted its last coal reserves this last November. On Friday, the regional government accepted the company's proposal to commit $2 million towards habitat restoration to avoid going to court for, quote, alleged unauthorized disturbances. G7 countries have officially watered down their climate commitments, with creating an exception for liquefied natural gas or LNG foreign funding to now dropping the commitment of making half of all cars sold by 2030 to be zero emissions after pressure from Japan. As mentioned yesterday, they did form the Climate Club to better collaborate on decarbonizing, but there's still little detail about how this new club will change anything past them maybe promising not to impose climate-related tariffs on each other. The G7 countries are the US, the UK, Italy, Japan, Germany, France, and Canada, and the EU sits in on meetings. 
The G7 group did reject a request by Germany and the UK to lower biofuel production requirements in favor of using the agricultural space for food production, which honestly could have been a positive thing to do since producing crops like corn and sugarcane for fuel has been hotly debated as actually reducing emissions. The US nixed the idea, though, and we are the largest biofuel producer in the world. Germany and the UK might go it alone on decreasing biofuel production, but that's unclear for now. Speaking of the UK, a new 600-page report by the Climate Change Committee, which is an independent body that advises the government on climate matters, determined that cutting carbon emissions by reducing gas dependency could save the UK 0.5% of its GDP because gas prices are so high. Additionally, they find the current insulation program shocking in a bad way. The committee calculated that consumers are paying an extra 40 pounds a year on bills because of previous cuts to the home renovation program. In general, the report finds that the UK is only hitting 8 out of 50 key indicators it needs to reach to decarbonize by 2050, with 11 deemed significantly off track. It says the UK only has credible plans for 39% of its required emissions cuts to meet the UK's legally binding carbon budgets. Two programs that the committee praises the government for are the Renewable Energy Program, which it says will save people £125 a year on bills by 2030, and the promotion of electric vehicles, though they note that there need to be more charging points and more electric vans. The report warns that without improving efforts towards the building industry, agriculture, and land use sectors, the UK will not reach its goal of net zero emissions by 2050. Agriculture is the weakest sector for climate regulations. The UK is doing bad, but they're actually potentially doing the best out of any G7 country because it dropped almost half of its emissions compared to 1990 levels. The CCC warns, though, that the new coal mine proposed in Cumbria risks blowing the UK's climate goals entirely. Over in the US, the Biden administration is holding its first oil and gas lease sales on federal lands The last big federal lease sale was blocked by a federal court on environmental grounds. The land being auctioned is in seven western states, mostly being in Wyoming, where 130,000 acres are for sale. The other states are Montana, North Dakota, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado. The Interior Department shrunk how much land was originally going to be sold in this auction by 80% after the initial announcement in April, though. The department also announced that it was raising warranty costs by 12.5% on previous sales and 18.75% for new lease sales to make up for, quote, deficiencies in the program. Any impact of this new sale on the production of oil and gas won't be felt for several years. The rising number of earthquakes in West Texas can be linked to oil and gas production according to a new study published in the Seismological Research Papers. The researchers tracked earthquake data in the region from 2017 to 2020 and found that 68% of the 5,000 earthquakes above 1.5 magnitude were highly associated with one or more oil and gas production activity. Those activities are mainly fracking, which is when water and chemicals are shot at high pressure against rocks to release oil and gas, and the disposal of that water and chemicals called formation water, which gets injected into geological formations. These activities are known to increase subsurface pore pressure, which can trigger earthquakes. Most were actually associated with the formation water disposal method more than fracking. The 2020 magnitude 5 earthquake in Matone, Texas, for example, was due to formation water injection. 
Lastly, I just want to say that I think the U.S. Supreme Court's West Virginia versus the EPA decision is going to drop any day now, so I'm going to do a video on that tomorrow or Friday. We'll see if it beats me to it, but either way, I need to cover it. If you don't know that case, long story short, it will determine if greenhouse gas emissions can be regulated under the Environmental Protection Agency's Clean Air Act. This can make a very big difference on how much the federal government can curb emissions. I'll tell you more in the video. And that was your climate news for Thursday, June 30th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.